The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Ruth Jackson and The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. The Profile is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. To request a free sample copy of the latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I am joined by Farithe Rob, who was raised as a Muslim in a Persian family, but spent most of her childhood in Europe before returning to Iran and then finally settling in the UK. Farithe has a PhD in English literature, but retrained as a nurse and then later retrained as a midwife, qualifying at the age of 48. Farifte has written a brilliant book called In the Shadow of the Shahs, Finding Unexpected Grace, and it tells some of her fascinating story, including her journey towards Christianity. Farifte, you grew up in Europe, but within a Persian family, what was that like? Well, it was very interesting because we stuck out a mile in the apartment block where we were uh, living um, as a, a very Iranian family um, in a, a Swiss milieu, and um, we 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 were proud of being Iranian. My parents were both Persian speakers, and we spoke Persian at home. And although they spoke both French and English, uh, they spoke it with quite a heavy accent. Uh, so we were always um, noticed wherever we went as. A, the, that foreign family on the fifth floor uh, but we were very proud of being Iranian and we were always told that as um, Muslims and Iranians we were um, God's God, God gave Islam that was the last of the Abrahamic religion so therefore it must be the most perfect and Iran has such a huge culture that predates anything that the Swiss had to offer at the time that we we were grew up in the sense of being very proud of our Persian heritage um, and being Muslims as well. Um, and we were, uh, my sister and I were uh, educated at the international school in Geneva. So that's where we learned English. Um, so I grew up speaking Persian at home, French in the street and English at school. And I don't remember learning any of those three languages. I've always known them all. And were there moments where you felt like you didn't quite belong because you weren't quite European and you weren't quite Persian? Yes, definitely. Um, I always, I've always felt that. I've always felt that I was different. Um, in, in, in Switzerland, we stuck out as foreigners. And in Iran, we stuck out as very much Westerners. Um, so these two identities were always separate. And I always felt throughout almost my adult life and even uh, into middle age sometimes that I was like a square cog in a round <laughs> wheel um, and yet I could always fit in somewhere um, that was the thing you, I could always get by because uh, I had good language skills and um, that really um, takes you a long way uh, culturally I was able to pretend quite <laughs> well and as you say there, Frifta, you were brought up in a Muslim home. Do you remember what your sort of first memory or experience of God was? I remember being taught by my parents that uh, God was 
very lofty and uh, very vigilant and he was watching <laughs> uh, your, your every move and that he was expecting you to have a good life. So he was very much a sort of regal figure uh, and quite intangible. Uh, we were always taught also uh, that we had two angels, one on each shoulder, each had a book. And the one on the right shoulder was noting down all everything good that you did and all your bad deeds were on, on the other side and that these books would be totted up the, in the day of judgment. So it was very much a, a sort of remote patriarchal figure that was kindly but had to be feared. Um, and that was the sort of the, the God of that I was... I, I, I felt I'd, I was being taught. It's probably not, not what many Muslims might agree is their vision of God, but that's how uh, I perceived it. You say in the book, I hated these prayer sessions, um, which presumably is talking about some of the <laughs> prayer sessions that you had as a child. Um, religion seemingly left me cold. Perhaps they sowed deep within me early seeds of seeking elsewhere the fulfilment for a longed-for spiritual dimension. Would you say just a little bit more about that, you know, why you felt like that, um, what it was sure. that kind of, yeah, felt incongruous for you? Yeah, um, my mother was the one who actually taught us the prayers. and uh, She said that they have to be said in a particular way uh, in Arabic. And she, she taught us these by rote. Um, and we had to follow a certain ritual in the home of the ablutions first and then the the prayers which in Arabic I mean it wasn't even Persian it was Arabic uh, and I'm not sure that my mother completely explained what those Arabic phrases meant but it felt as though you were following uh, a sort of a, a ritual as a child that I didn't quite understand and it was something that had to be said in a in a certain way perfectly um, and then that that was the end of it. But there wasn't a closeness uh, that you could feel with uh, somebody who would be kind and fatherly and and help you. It was sort of um, repeating by rote to uh, a remote person. And 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 I kind of felt these were just things that you had to do, like homework and <laughs> it didn't uh, it didn't make me look forward to these prayer sessions at all um and maybe that was a fault in me and the way that um i perceived them um so i don't want to say that uh these are not good prayers and i know that many of my muslim friends find great comfort in them but i certainly didn't um and as a child i kind of felt um I want something more. Uh, I want something out with myself that I can be close to. And I didn't get that from what I was being taught at home. You seem to be drawn to the Christian church, even as a child. What was it about Christianity, do you think, that was so appealing to you? Well, it, interestingly, I, uh, I, I think that my initial uh, feeling about it was uh, really started off but why when I disobeyed my mother I crossed the road and there was this church door open um, and I went in and it was a Catholic church which is unusual because 
um, Geneva's the seat of Calvinism. <laughs> However, <laughs> God knows no boundaries. So I went in and there was this heavy atmosphere of incense. There were Latin chants. There were candles flickering and there were beautiful icons and stations of the cross. Everything that is possibly uh, anti-Islam and this huge cross over the altar with a very kind um, figure on it who was obviously suffering, but almost felt as though he invited me in. And I was just totally awestruck by this aesthetic um, emotion uh, and it was something that I wanted to feel very close to. And it was a, f a place where I thought uh, this, this is an attraction that I must follow. And I was only about eight or nine then. Um, and I think that it was initially an aesthetic appeal and the curiosity that drew me in. Uh, but eventually I wanted to find out about this figure on the cross. And so I went to the school library and started looking at books and initially again it was pictures picture books of a very kindly Jesus surrounded by children and the more I looked at these the more I then read and I kind of felt here is somebody who is divine but is can be very close to you and I felt then that was very different I knew it was the same God because we were taught, taught that it's the same God in Judaism, Islam and Christianity. But it was uh, another manifestation of the God, which I felt as a child was better and certainly better for me. We'll come back to your journey of Christianity in a bit, because it's something that sort of happened at yeah. various points yeah. in your life. But as a teenager, you moved back to Iran. Was that something of a culture shock to you and your sister? Yes, it was definitely because it was in the 60s and we were both teenagers. Well, I was uh, about 15, 16 and the Beatles were in and, you know, it was that kind of culture. The teen culture was taking off and and I was quite well established at the school. I had a great coterie of friends. And when we went to Iran, we always knew we were going back. It was never, uh, you know, a shock to go back. But I kind of felt... Uh, this is where I'm supposed to belong, but I don't feel I belong. I kind of feel a fish out of water. And of course, we were lucky in that it was in the time of the Shah where it was quite liberal and society was very tolerant then. Uh, so it would have been completely different going back now as a teenager, uh, where the culture is uh, much more Islamic and militant. But that there, it Tehran was at the time uh, a sort of eastern city like Hong Kong with um, a, a kind of a lot of Western culture within it. Uh, but I still felt that within the family, because Iranian society, Persian society is very family orientated, that there were certain um, ethics of hospitality, which certainly uh, because you always followed your elders, my sister and I almost appeared quite boorish because <laughs> we didn't know those and um although I was happy to be there I always felt um I don't really quite belong here but then as I told my mother I don't belong here she said well you don't belong in Switzerland either because you're a foreigner there so <laughs> you'd better start liking it here <laughs> <laughs> because this is the only country 
um, that you can call home. And I think, see, they, my parents lived through the wars and they said the only place if there is ever a war is your country where you belong. Uh, no other country will really accept you as their own. She always said to us, if there's a war, this is the only place you'll have a haven. <laughs> so it was almost incumbent on me to feel that I, I should belong. But I always felt, you know, I, I was different. And, uh, and all, you know, uh, I hadn't been at school there, so I didn't, my reading and writing skills were very poor. And in fact, now I can hardly read or write because we were never taught it. And I went to the French school uh, in Tehran because um, I, I wasn't good enough. My Persian wasn't good enough to go to senior school in Persian. And the English and American schools sent their children abroad, you see, at that stage. Uh, and so the schools didn't really go as far up um, into, you know, certificate level. Um, uh, so, it, again, even when I started making friends nearby in the neighborhood, they said, oh, well, she's the girl who came from Europe and now goes to the, she doesn't go to the local school, she goes to the French school. So that was another difference. Uh, it wasn't easy as a teenager, but, you know, um, I think the, the, the whole concept of teenagers does, didn't certainly mm -hmm. exist in Persian society. You were a child, then you were an adult. And you weren't given a concession for, you know, sowing your wild oats as a teenager. <laughs> you were expected to, to behave uh, as an adult. And that was quite difficult. So you did your undergraduate degree in Iran and then you moved to England yeah. and did a PhD at Nottingham. Yeah. And that was when you really started to explore Christianity, wasn't it? Um, I did, a, I did a, my first degree in Iran in English studies. And then I got a very prestigious um, grant to go to the American University of Beirut, uh, which I didn't want to do, to, to do a master's. And I didn't want to go there because it was another, not an, an English speaking um, country, but I was accepted by from Nottingham uh, to go there to to do um, further studies, a, a PhD there, and uh, I spent five years at Nottingham, uh, five academic sessions, uh, and um, then graduated with a PhD from there. But I was in my final two years of that, I was under a grant from the Shah's government, which uh, meant that I had to come back to teach in the university in Iran. So you were studying in Nottingham and you were doing a really interesting subject for your PhD, yeah. weren't you? Because I had always been interested in uh, religion and, and in Christianity, I felt that when they asked me, what um, topic do you want to do? Uh, I felt it would be great to be able to combine what I was going through, faith and doubt, um, in, uh, and I could link that to literature. And I was particularly interested in the 19th century. So we took, um, well, I, I studied several uh, 19th century poets. One who was, the first one was an agnostic in an age of faith, that was Keats. And the last one was uh, a Jesuit priest in an age of doubt. And in between, there were these four Victorian doubters in the time of Darwin. And, uh, and so I, I had to study church history. And it was a way of combining my sort of love of uh, people who battled to find spiritual fulfillment in their lives 
with my love of literature. And that's how my PhD evolved from that. Um, and it obviously meant that I had to study Christianity in much greater depth, uh, which brought me to a, a, a better understanding of it. And did you feel like it wasn't just an academic pursuit, but actually it, it began to kind of answer or if if not raise questions that you'd kind of been grappling with on a personal level as much as on an academic level as well? Yeah, definitely. Um, I kind of felt this was the way for me uh, personally, uh, but I felt that um, it would be very difficult. At the time, I felt it would be impossible for me ever to declare it because... Um, you know, culture and religion are very deeply intertwined in the, in the Middle East. And, um, you know, if you're a Muslim, you're all, that's also part of your culture. And uh, it's almost like when people ask, uh, if you say to somebody, uh, what religion are you? And they tell you, oh, I'm an atheist. They'll always say, are you a Muslim atheist or are you a Jewish atheist? Because these things uh, mean a lot. And I kind of felt that if I ever became a Christian, it would somehow be perceived as um, rejecting my Persian identity, which I wasn't prepared to do. However, uh, the more I, I, I sort of carried on in my studies and more Christians I met, um, then I realized that my heart was really following Christ. And but again, like always, I felt an outsider because people like the Methodists were very, very kind and they accepted me to come into their church, worship with them and even allowed me to take communion only in their church. They weren't sort of uh, saying, oh, you can do it anywhere, but uh, <laughs> because they felt that I was, um, uh, you know, uh, sincere uh, they allowed me to then that allowed me to become very very close to Christ but I still felt I was an outsider um, and I do remember I, I kind of felt that I could worship freely in any Christian church and so I went I took myself off to the Anglican church and I would go to Evensong there I would be going to the Methodist church in the morning on a Sunday and to Evensong in the evening and once they had an evening communion and the priest who was administering the communion was actually uh, the, a lecturer in the English department as well. And he knew me as an Iranian Muslim. And <laughs> when I blithely went up to the communion rail, I remember very distinctively that he passed the communion elements over my head and refused to serve me. And I was left there thinking, this is... I don't belong here. He's rejected me um, and I will never be part of this. I can pretend to go to church and I can pretend all, all this, but I'm, I'm destined never to be accepted. And it was always a kind of a thorn in my side. It's something I wanted to do, but I felt was out with my remit. So what was it that finally led you to get baptised as a Christian? Because there was obviously lots of little points along the journey, but yes. was there one definitive moment where you thought, this is it, I'm, I'm a Christian yes. now? It's when I returned to Iran, because after I finished the PhD, I had to return to Iran to, to teach. And this was only 10 months before the revolution, which none of us saw coming. 
but at the time that I had left Iran, I hadn't known of the existence of a Persian church. All I was aware of was that Christianity in Iran had predated Islam and um, the Christians there were Armenian and Assyrian, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians who spoke a different language and were ethnically different. I didn't know of an existence of a Persian church. But when I went back to Iran to teach, I shared a flat with an English girl um, who said to me on Friday, uh, I'm, I'm off to church. And I said to her, what do you mean you're off to church? She said, oh, well, they've switched the Sunday service to Friday because that's the Sabbath in Iran. And I'm off to the Persian church. And I said, well, what Persian church? Um, and I didn't even know it existed because in my uh, Muslim household, it was never talked about. So I accompanied her to St. Paul's Church in Tehran and realized that here is the Episcopal Church in Jerusalem and the Middle East, of which Iran is a diocese. And uh, it's a church made up, obviously, of expatriates and missionaries who worship in it. But the Persian people were either first or second generation uh, converts from Islam. And I didn't even know that I, I could sort of be one of them. And I realized here are people just like me who are attracted to Christ and to Christianity and who have made that move. So then, then I thought, here is a church where I could fit in and I could stay Iranian, stay uh, Persian, keep my Muslim heritage and yet become a Christian. And I would fit in here because there are other people who have done exactly the same thing. And that was the defining thing, because before that, I kind of felt if I become a Christian abroad, that. People will say at home, oh, yes, that she went to Europe and that's one of the other one thing that she did. <laughs> she was, it's almost like, oh, she became a vegetarian or something like that. <laughs> they wouldn't have appreciated it. And I felt that it would have no meaning if I came back. Um, whereas here I felt I could live in Iran and keep my culture and my identity and yet embrace this. Um, faith that was actually already in my heart for a long time and I think that the timing of it was really God's doing it was perfect because I think if I'd left it a few months after the revolution my family suffered a lot and um, with various things we had uncles in the military and so on and I think the political implications of, for my family of becoming a Christian uh, I wouldn't have done it. It would have been too big a blow for them. So I think that after 20 years, I finally made the decision almost on the brink of when I might never have joined the church. But I knew that God knew that I had been a Christian a long time before that. It was more or less a public declaration. As you say, that Christian baptism was a public declaration of your faith. Now, becoming a Christian in a Muslim country um, from a Muslim background must have been quite a statement. I mean, how was that received by friends and family? Well, at the time, you see, Iran was religiously tolerant. In the time of the Shah, Jude Jews, Muslims, Christians and Zoroastrians could all be members of parliament. Uh, uh, they lived side by side peacefully uh, they, and respectfully. Uh, they knew people 
were of different faiths, um, almost like Hindus and Muslims lived in before partition in India. Uh, there was a, a, a real sense of camaraderie and uh, it wasn't um, badly received at all. And also my parents, um, friends and our family were very tolerant um, people and very broad minded. And they kind of felt it was a shame that uh, I had to do that and that I didn't find fulfillment in Islam. But they didn't think it was a sin, really, because they thought there's so many worse things that I could have done, like become an alcoholic or <laughs> a lap dancer. But so becoming a Christian, my dad said, they're not going to ever lead you astray. <laughs> this lot, that lot, <laughs> they're, they're good people. So it wasn't taken too badly, but my parents did make me promise that I wouldn't um, sort of publicize it too much. So, okay, we know, our family know, and uh, some of our friends know, but don't go blabbing about it because it reflects badly on us that maybe we haven't brought you up right or things like that. And I kind of feel that afterwards, after the revolution, they felt that they people they would be sort of perceived as having nurtured an apostate, um, and that would have been much more difficult for them. But at the time, it wasn't a big deal, and I was lucky for that. And I think I was lucky to have been born in that family that was broad-minded and tolerant and fairly well well educated, because otherwise I may not have made the move. That was Farithay Rob speaking to me, Ruth Jackson, here on Premier Christian Radio. You are listening to The Profile and we will be hearing more from Farithay after this short break. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome back to the second half of The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Ruth Jackson and The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. The Profile is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. To request a free sample copy of the latest issue, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I am joined by Farithay Robb. Would you say a little bit about what your church was like in Iran? It was, well, it was wonderful. It was, it, it worshipped on a Friday. Uh, they had switched the services from Sunday to Friday. Um, and they had a big English congregation that had the Sunday worship in the mornings. And that was because there was a big, obviously, diplomatic and expatriate community that were English speaking. And it was held in the basement of a school, an English school, primary school called Henry Martin. Henry Martin was the first person who translated the Bible into Persian. Um, but there was a church below it, a proper kind of little chapel below it. And the Persian service was held there in the afternoons, uh, another communion service. So it was bilingual and you could at- attend both of them. They, they had a Persian priest, Khalil Razmara, and a Persian bishop who lived in Isfahan. And um, there was uh, uh, an Anglican-American uh, priest, actually, who took the English services. Uh, but there, it, it really functioned as a bilingual uh, church. 
Um, and it was really an Anglican service because the, the church is part of the Anglican communion. And so therefore the liturgy was what I was familiar with from my experiences in England. And it was just, I just felt it fitted me just Right. Uh, Well, I had to have an interview with the bishop before I was uh, baptised because I had a a series of instruction as well. And one of the key questions that he asked me, and I think I put that in the book as well, was, do you want to get married? He himself, he's he's died now, but he was himself a convert from Islam, Hassan Dehwani Tafti. He asked me, do you want to get married? And I said, well, if the right person comes along, yes. And he said, well, I hope that if you if you ever do get married, it would be a Christian marriage. Uh, and I said, yes, definitely. And he said, well, there aren't any Christians, your men, your age or older in Iran <laughs> of, of your, this background, because he said, I've been up and down the country and in all our cities, there, there's only about three or four uh, men your age or older one is blind and the other one um, isn't really looking for a wife so he said you must really be quite sure that if you do become baptized and you're a christian here in iran uh, coming from islam you might not find a christian man to marry and you you might be closing the door on marriage and children and he said i don't want you to to go into this blind it's not just a matter of faith in this culture. He said, if you become a Christian, it will affect the whole of the rest of your life. And uh, you have to be quite sure of that. And that was quite a key question. Uh, I felt the risk was worth taking at the time. Uh, But it certainly brought me up, you know, sharp, because I just sort of thought, you know, you really need to reflect on this. It's almost like a marriage, you know, there would be no going back. What was it like living in Iran during the revolution? That was very difficult because, first of all, it was the fear of uncertainty. In some ways, it was, my parents said, it was almost like living in the war uh, during the Second World War. You just didn't know when it was going to end. You didn't know what was around the corner. In some ways, that was good because you couldn't foresee how bad it was going to be. Um, and you, you always have hope. Uh, but, you know, there was martial law and there was a curfew. And there were roundups and people were disappearing and um, people were uh, always looking behind them. There was no petrol. There was no electricity. uh, The food was going down and you just didn't know what was happening. Um, I think the worst was when families started to disappear and um, you kept hearing about uh, people who would be tried and on the television you had beheadings and people hanging and uh, being tried for their crimes all the time and it was very, uh, a frightening time people didn't really talk much to other people they just didn't you didn't know who your friends were I, I would say it was a very very difficult time I was a new convert then uh, so I was full of hope and optimism and I think that helped me through but I you know I do remember I lived at home and my parents friends would come around and they were all quite depressed about what was going on and um, there were dire pronouncement that the world was coming to an end and it was difficult. So when did you decide that it was time to leave Iran and was part of the decision because of the revolution? It's kind of um, 
came about really. Um, I was I lost my job in the purge after the revolution when the universities opened. I got sacked from my post. I didn't have a job. I couldn't do anything. I wasn't married. I lived at home. Uh, I was nearly 30. So I thought, well, there was a, a British hospital not far from where we lived. And they advertised for a team of translators, just volunteer translators for their clinics because um, it was staffed by British doctors, but they treated Persian, poor Persian uh, patients. And uh, the British doctors obviously didn't know Persian, hadn't learned Persian yet, and the patients didn't know English. So we had, I was given a white coat, I was part of this team of volunteers, and you sat in a clinic, the doctor would say, could you ask this patient, blah, 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 blah. And um, then I would tell the patient in Persian and then would relay the answer. Now, during that time, we were, this team of volunteers, translators, we were under uh, supervision from the matron of the hospital and she and I became quite good friends and I told her that you know I've just become a Christian etc and she said one day you know this country's going to the dogs you're a Christian uh, you you haven't got a husband you're living at home you haven't got a job you've got no prospects nothing great is going to happen to you but she said Britain is crying out for nurses this was in the late 70s and she said I Uh, trained at St George's Hospital at Hyde Park Corner in London and they are this year moving to a brand new hospital in Tooting in South London and she says I know they're recruiting for several extra intakes of nurses so she said why don't you apply uh, and see if you can get in because at the time nursing was paid and she said you've got good language skills you're bright And you like hospitals because I did enjoy the job very much. It was just a volunteer post. And she said, you know, you'd be able to do it. Um, And if you like it, it would be a a solution. So I told my parents uh, they were not initially very happy because they, you know, my father said, you know, you've got a PhD. You're not going to go and wash patients in the hospital. (laughs) I didn't pay for all that education. (laughs) there was um, there, there really wasn't anything else and I, I had an aunt in London who had married an English doctor and she was living there and I then applied uh, to go and visit her for a, a two-week break uh, or two or three weeks I had to show I had a return ticket and getting that exit permit um, was uh, difficult uh, but eventually it was stamped and I bought my airline ticket and went to London. And while I was there, we went to Croydon, the immigration office, and, and you know, got my permit to stay for the three weeks. And then I got uh, an interview with, uh, you know, the recruitment nurse at St. George's Hospital and I think if, uh, one thing led to another and he took me, he said, OK, we'll accept you for three months probation and then it will be three year training. So then I went back to the immigration office and got a student nurse visa for those three years. And that's how that happened. So I started and then at St. George's Hospital in London. But then, um, you know, uh, one thing led to another. I wrote to James, who was by then in Paisley and he wrote back and after we married I transferred my training 
to Glasgow, the Western Infirmary in Glasgow, where we lived. Well, let's t- let's talk a little bit about James, because when you were back in the UK, you reconnected with James, yeah. who, who was to become your husband. But that wasn't the first time you yeah. met him, was it? No, I met him in the last few months uh, before I returned to Iran. Uh, I was in the final throes of doing a PhD. And of course, because I had uh, a subject that involved theology, I was in touch with the theology department at Nottingham University. And one of the lecturers who was helping me was a um, what they call a moral tutor in one of the male halls of residence. Of course, now all these halls are mixed. But at the time, there was I was in a female hall. There was a male hall. And the, it was quite old fashioned. I mean, they had maybe once a month they had a, what's known as a ladies night where uh, you could invite a lady uh, to dine <laughs> in the senior common room with the other tutors. And so this theology lecturer, Douglas Davis, who eventually married us, invited me on this particular night. And one of the other people in that dinner and in that hall was James. And that's how we met. Um, and we kind of became very, very good friends and quite close friends um, I mean, I'd not dated anybody before, but, you know, I suppose it could have been a a sort of definitely a romance. And um, I think that was in the December and in June I graduated. So it was only about sort of six, seven months. And I knew I was going back because I had this grant and I had to teach in Iran for four years in order to repay that grant. Now, this was before Internet, before um, mobile phones or anything so I knew that when I was going back that would have been it for four years for me so and possibly I hoped that he might ask me to marry him uh, then Uh, but he said you know uh, we can't have a a long-term commitment like this I have to stay here I have to finish my training I've got another six years ahead of me I'm going to be going for surgery you're going to go away for four years so I think we should just stay friends and see what happens um and I, I was heartbroken of course because I just knew that was the end of that and I was going miles and miles away and there was no way of contacting him and in that time the revolution happened there was martial law there was no postal services and by the time I came back uh, as to become a nurse in London uh, maybe three and a half years had gone down the line and I just assumed oh, well, uh, I'll, I'll write to him, I'll send a Christmas card, but he's probably married with about three kids by now because um, he was quite a good catch. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and I didn't even know where he was. Uh, I just wrote to Nottingham, apparently the letter, Christmas card was forwarded to his parents in Warwickshire and they forwarded to Paisley and I got this letter back. Um, and he says, so give me a ring. And so, of course, on this... Um, it was a wall-mounted public telephone where you're putting <laughs> ten, ten pieces in. Then everybody could hear. That's how we renewed the contact, and we both realised during that phone call that neither of us was married. <laughs> and we decided to meet. And of course, I'd never been to Scotland in my life, so I decided just to go on some of my days off up to Glasgow, and um, that's how the romance then started off again almost four years down the line Um, and and then you got married and had four children and now have grandchildren yes and of course every time I met Bishop Hassan before he died 
he always reminded me <laughs> of when he told me that, oh, you know, if you become a Christian, you might never marry or have kids. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I suppose on the flip side to all of those amazing blessings in your life, I, I guess both in Iran and as a nurse, um, you must have experienced lots of suffering um, of other people, but also you tell the tragic story of your own miscarriage in the book. How do you yeah. reconcile all of that pain with, with the knowledge that God is good and that he loves you? Yes, that was quite difficult because I felt a huge amount of guilt about that because I already had children, you see, and um, I, I had three children and I, was, I felt I was being greedy for more. And that was a big, I felt it was very sinful. And, uh, but there was a, a sort of elemental sort of need for me to have another child. I don't know what it was. And I'm sure that it drove my husband absolutely crazy because uh, I don't think he quite got the depth of that um, anguish. However, um, the way I resolved it, partly it was just time and partly it was because I felt that um, if I could acknowledge to God that this child had been given to us and was taken away back to him, uh, sort of in a, in a service, in a Christian service with prayers then I I felt I could then um, reconcile it within myself and put it to rest and that's how I resolved it and I must say my my husband is not really a very demonstrative person at all and I'm sure that he probably thought oh my god you know I've got to go to church and have this service on a a baby that wasn't quite a baby etc however he went along with it and Uh, I then felt that that child was a blessing in some way and I will one day be reunited with him or her um, and that I should just be thankful for what I've got. Um, The thing is, you always, as a mother, even though you have children, you still want all your children. Um, And I felt it was more, uh, not that God wasn't loving, but that I wasn't thankful enough for what, I already had and I then realized how much love he had given to me in the other children that I had uh, which I possibly had just taken for granted before and I was really blessed to have another child after that Uh, and that was really I think his gift to me although I didn't deserve it. (laughs) Are there any bible verses that have been a source of comfort in moments like these of great suffering? can't think of one off but there is one bible verse that is extremely important to me uh, that isn't so much to do with suffering but it's very much to do with my identity as a muslim convert and that is i think it's john um 2 10 or something like that it says other jesus says other sheep i have which you do not know of And those two I will bring in within my fold. And I always um, take comfort in that by feeling that he knows that um, people like my parents or other Muslims are also part of his life. Um, Even though a lot of maybe very evangelical Christians say to me that, you know, unless you actually 
confess that Jesus is Lord, you are not saved. I, I can't really um, accept that in some way. Uh, I just feel that he knows uh, and he loves everybody. Frifta, if if you could go back to your teenage self, knowing everything that you've learned along the way, all of the pieces of advice that you've been given, all of the experiences that you've had, is there anything that you would say to your teenage self in light of all of that? I, I would probably tell myself not to worry so much uh, because I worried massively about offending people all the time. I was trying to be popular <laughs> by fitting in. Um, and now I don't know whether it's just because I'm older and it doesn't seem to matter anymore. I'm more confident uh, that, you know, things will come right in the end if you're patient enough to wait, because sometimes God doesn't give you the answer, yes or no, straight away. He just says, wait. And I think Milton famously said, uh, they also serve who stand and wait. But, um, and also that uh, I think, some, somewhere I, I heard that things will always be fine in the end. And if it's not fine, it's not the end. Um, and, and I think that I had a lot of worry about how things would pan out for me uh, and whether I should absolutely fit in to everybody's expectations of me. And I think that's not so important now. And, and is there any <laughs> advice that you would give to a young person who, like you, is, is struggling to fit in and doesn't quite know where they belong? Well, I think it's easier now uh, because certainly now it's acceptable uh, to be multicultural. It's acceptable to be, um, you know, questioning. Whereas the, the society in which I was brought up, you were very much... Um, told to fit in <laughs> or to keep silent um, and I think I the, the thing for me would be not to stick your neck out so far that <laughs> you're going to offend somebody but just to keep on what you believe and carry on in in the right way and um, but look for solutions as well uh, I think teenage years are difficult for for people, and the good thing nowadays is that it doesn't um, really uh, make you a lesser person if you are different. Of course, that's easy to say to somebody who feels very different. Um, I think if you're looking uh, spiritually, uh, keep these things in your heart and speak to God about them and sometimes if you wait long enough you'll see a light shining through and there there will be a way out um, not to look for instant answers. Is there any encouragement that you would give to a Muslim who's really been reading about Jesus and sort of grappling with Christianity and is thinking of converting to Christianity, but is perhaps scared because of their background and their culture and how it will be perceived and the danger to their family and things like that? Yes, well, I think, um, you know, I was I kept I became a Christian a long time before I was baptized and for a long time people didn't really know about it um, and I think that it is permissible 
certainly for you to keep that relationship just alive between you and God for a while. Um, and I think that you have to, you know, God also told us that you have to be respectful of your parents um, and of your neighbours. So you, I wouldn't, I would say, keep going uh, on as a Christian, but perhaps um, be kind to those around you and not to create huge problems straight off. Uh, I don't think... Um, that you see I, I i didn't become baptized for many 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 years until the time was right um sometimes you kind of feel the time is right just there and then but then you have to be brave enough uh to carry on uh, with the consequences um i think nowadays it's permissible to become a christian as long as you don't go around saying that like I never do, um, that being a Muslim is wrong because it's just a different way of getting to God. Uh, I know that for some uh, really, some very strong Christians, they would probably say that you have to reject your past faith if you're going to accept Christ. But I think that past faith was given to you by God and God gave you that identity and God nurtured you through Islam. Well, certainly nurtured me through Islam to come to Christ. And um, that is, was also part of God's plan. So I don't think that you should reject what you came from, but just um, assimilate it to what you've become now through Christ. Um, and I think that will give you certainly a measure of peace. And certainly for me, I've been able to reconcile it. And that was the unexpected grace that I received, because I feel now that I've reconciled those two sides of myself. Um, and possibly writing about it did help, um, because it's sort of united the rest of my life into this book. And I kind of feel, yes, I can look back on it now. Uh, I'm lucky because I'm old. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> The, the panorama of it and I can see that it's led to who I am but who I am uh, is a Christian but I've not rejected Islam nor have I rejected uh, my my culture uh, or anything to do with that and I will never say that Muslims uh, are wrong or are going to hell or anything and I think you, if you're honest like that then you can have a reconciliation between the two and you can still keep the respect of your Muslim um, neighbours and family. I hope, anyway. Well, Farifta, it's yeah. been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Farifta Rob, author of In the Shadow of the Shahs, Finding Unexpected Grace. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Farifta Rob speaking to me, Ruth Jackson, here on Premier Christian Radio. I do hope you enjoyed this interview and for hundreds more conversations like this, you can download the profile as a podcast. Just search for The Profile wherever you normally get your podcasts from or visit premierchristianradio.com slash the profile.